Hey, we just wanted to take a minute to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that you're enjoying the podcast and we love hearing from you. Yes, I've loved making this podcast with you, Lee. When we started doing this, I had no idea how to use a mixer or how to edit. <laughs> and now that we've been doing this for over a year, I still don't know how to use a mixer or how to edit. I might even know less than when we started. Well, at least you can say you certainly know a lot more about Northern Exposure. And we hope the listeners out there have gained something too. Anyway, if you like to listen to us ramble on about the minute details and the big ideas, you know, the the color of Joel's shirt or obscure trivia like Anwar, then you should consider subscribing to our brand new Patreon page. Yes, once a month, we'll be posting an exclusive bonus episode about movies and television shows and themes related to Northern Exposure on the Patreon. We've already got this month's bonus episode available on our Patreon page. We cover the directorial debut of Rob Morrow, you know, Dr. Fleischman. It's the film Maze from the year 2000. And since this is the very first time we've started the Patreon, we wanted to throw in a little incentive to get the ball rolling. When you become a patron, we're going to mail you a custom-made postcard designed by Laser Kitties, who designed our podcast artwork. And these postcards look incredible. They have this nostalgic feeling you got when you visited those mom-and-pop gas station stores your parents stopped at on the family vacation road trip. <laughs> you go inside and grab a bag of combos, pizza flavor of course, and vanilla <laughs> Coke. And look at the rack with postcards that read greetings from Little Rock in those big block letterings. But these postcards will be about Sicily, Alaska and all things Northern Exposure. Yeah, we're going to write you a message or doodle something on the back, something unique for every postcard. We've even got a bonus tier for the first 50 patrons. You can get the Maze bonus episode and a postcard from us for just $1. Just $1? Just $1. We love making the podcast, but it takes up a long part of our weeks to record, research, and then edit it all down. But that's not going to stop us. We are dedicated to Northern Exposure and to the fans of the show. If you want to help us out and support the podcast, we'll take all the help we can get. We just want to make sure you get a little something extra for being there along the way. Please check out our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast, and become a patron today. to be just a random sequence of numbers. Right, but it can't be because the relationship of the circumference and the diameter never changes. Well, exactly. The sequence is always the same. You know, I just have this feeling if I could take pi, well, past all this static, take pi to 10 billion, 20 billion digits, that I'd find something really incredible. Not just a pattern, not just an order, but a... What? What? Say it. A sign. A mathematical sign. Like a message from God? Yes. So... So... You came to tell me something? Chris is the bearer of bad news in this scene. And unfortunately, he was just starting to get into this conversation invigorated by this new character, Amy. Uh, and he's got to break the bad news, which we'll get to. But uh, I just want to live in this soundbite for a second. What do you, what do you think about this, this scene here? I like it. I like the introduction of the character of Amy. It really sets her up as somebody that really follows the credence of order and very methodical. She's obviously into mathematics. And because she's so deep into the inner workings of mathematics, it's almost philosophical, which naturally captures Chris's attention. 
Yeah, I love, like you said, she's a person that seeks order, uh, trying to find some meaning in this randomness that she describes. I love all the computers, all the animals in this scene. She's got like basically a pet store of cats and like canaries and all these really cool 90s computers, you know, like the retro, I guess retro now uh, computers <laughs> and just very, I don't know if that was a, a real graphical user interface or if that was just something they, some program they made for the show. Is that what computers really looked like in 92? I think so. I have a uh, an, an old Macintosh that vaguely resembles that, but I, I've never turned it on, so I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what's what's being displayed on the screen is accurate. I remember playing uh, Oregon Trail on Macintosh, and then we had like Windows 95. That's like the earliest computer that we had that wasn't just like my grandmother's Macintosh with the big floppy, the actual floppy disks. Mm, I am very jealous of that because you played Oregon Trail in school, right? I did, but I also had it at like my grandmother gave me her old Macintosh. And so we had some oh. floppies, but, but yeah, we, we played in school. Yeah. 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 I always heard stories about y'all because y'all got to play Oregon trial. I never got to play Oregon. Trial. I just know you get <laughs> dysentery on it or something like that. Like I, that's all, that's all I know about it. You, so you've never played Oregon trail. No, no, I, I don't even know how it works. Dude, I would strongly recommend it. I'm sure you can find it. Like it's probably like abandoned where just like archival, just play it for free in a browser now. But um, I know that you they also make a really cool handheld device. I think it's like $20, $25. It, it's probably not for worth Oregon it. Oregon Trail? All, yeah. It's probably not worth it because all it plays is Oregon Trail. But it's pretty cool. Like I know Target, I think, sells it. Um, I would recommend just checking it out, even if it just means going on like archive.org or something and playing it through a browser. Super fun game. Mm. What are we talking about here? <laughs> okay, so we are <laughs> actually, we were talking about Oregon Trail, but we should be talking about Northern Exposure, the 90s TV series from CBS. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast where we overanalyze the show. And uh, usually we like to bring someone on at the end of the episode, someone who has never seen the show before, just to get sort of an outsider opinion. Does the, does the episode stand up on its own? Uh, how does it hold up in 2020? I know, Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. So this episode is kind of new to you, but you're familiar with the show now. We're in season four. And, oh, I guess, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Lee. Charles, you are my co-host. And <laughs> and I've seen the show a number of times. Charles, uh, this is your first time watching the episode. What'd you think? Yeah, I thought that this episode has a lot to overanalyze in it. In fact, I almost felt like I was wading through, like, in between the space between you jump off of a diving board to a swimming pool and there's like that air in between and you can kind of do whatever you want because you're not bound <laughs> by gravity. That's kind of how I felt on this episode because there was so much to overanalyze, but like I didn't know which direction to go to. Like I could have done, I could have moved in any of the 360 degrees yeah. that this whole episode was about. So yeah, I'm really excited to dig deep into it with you. Yeah, I like that expression. It's sort of like a free fall, and, and really you could look in any direction and find something any, in any of the plot lines to overanalyze. There's so much um, weight to everything that's happening, and it's you know it has sort of the externalism of what's actually happening in the plot, but sort of like a subtext. Everything has a bit of subtext. Like there's a plot about time. There's a plot about the randomness of pie and of love and of life and death. Everything is just, you know, open for interpretation. Yeah, large abstract ideas 
right here that they, they don't necessarily try to boil it down to a one-sentence explanation, which I really like about this episode. It yeah. kind of leaves it up to the viewer of how they want to interpret it. And you get these themes and you try to play it off of each character and how they would react to it, which is how great writing should be done. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, you were describing Amy, this new sort of mathematician character, as being like a like um, representation of order. Yeah, I agree. I really love it in TV shows like Northern Exposure and just any sort of medium where you can really take a central idea and analyze it through a whole bunch of different philosophies. Like we have this new Amy character, as you said, who is sort of the a characterization of order, but then you also take whatever the context is of the scene and shine a light through in all the di different prisms of all the other characters, like their point of view on, on a subject, you know? There's the scene with Maurice, oh, we're going to get ahead of ourselves if we keep going down this. we got to find some order ourselves. <laughs> Where should we start? Well, let's start off with uh, Doggo Watch 2020, which <laughs> unfortunately ends very, very quickly. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, the first scene of this episode is um, Chris is driving down the road listening to some country music, which, Charles, I was telling you, I couldn't figure out what the title of this track was. It's most likely it was um, replaced. You know, the music has been replaced for the DVDs. So I don't even know what the original broadcast music would have been. According to moosechick.com, it says... The song playing here would have been I Heard a Jukebox Playing by Kitty Wells. That's not the song that's on the DVD, but unfortunately I couldn't figure out what it was using Shazam or whatever other. I used uh, Shazam and Soundhound. I think that's the name of the app. Uh, we're not being sponsored by the app, so I'm not going to go <laughs> through the trouble of finding the proper name for it. But yeah, I, I couldn't find it either. But yeah, we, we see Chris going down it, and then we see a car playing heavy metal music, just driving down the yeah. opposite lane, and Chris kind of like vibes with it. He's like, yeah, go on, man. Like, I appreciate what you're doing, and in the act of doing so, though, he wasn't keeping his eyes on the road like he should be, and right. committed a murder. <laughs> I guess a dog murder? Yeah. I mean, I think someone does call him a dog murderer, right? Or does he call himself that? Someone says dog murderer in this episode, right? <laughs> Probably Joel. Well, he committed <laughs> a vehicular homicide. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Well, yes, you're right. He was not watching the road, and he pulls over, and we see sort of the corpse of a dog. It's not too graphic, but, I mean, I'm sure it, it makes you wince, you know, when you're driving down the road and you just see on the side of the road what was an animal, you know, kind of pushed to the side. And um, Chris is obviously... Pretty moved by this, as you would expect. He, uh, We learned that he tried to bring it to Joel's uh, doctor's office and Joel – the scene starts off with Joel saying, I'm sorry, I couldn't uh, – I couldn't save it. It was already – you know, it was dead when you brought it to me basically. It died on impact I think Joel says. Yes, and immediately we're brought to our first theme of like order versus chaos because – Chris muses that he understands that the universe is random and that death happens all the time, but to be an instrument of that death, to actually play a part in it is a whole different matter right there. Yeah. Do you think he means like the idea that it's almost, it feels like it's all out of your control if you accept the idea that it's all random? It feels like it's all out of your control, but he feels like he has some blame here. Like it, even if it, even if he believes it wasn't in his control, 
he was the instrument that caused the animal's death. He feels like uh, he's somehow involved there. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so you could argue and be like, oh, it was destiny that you had hit this dog. But Chris says, like, no, even if it was, though, like, it doesn't matter whether it was free will or if it was destiny, you still feel really crappy because you feel that either way, your actions had an impact on this animal. And that is where we're left off with right at the first two minutes of the episode. Yeah, some pretty heavy stuff. And I'm pretty sure right after that scene is the opening title music. I forgot to mention the title of the episode is Nothing's Perfect, which I'm sure we're going to be analyzing <laughs> and uh, wrapping around a lot of different themes in this uh, in this episode or a lot of different plot lines. Uh, Nothing's Perfect in this episode. It's, it's a very fitting title. The original air date was October 12th, 1992, directed by Nick Mark, who did a lot of the episodes, directed a lot of the episodes in the last season. I think his first episode was All is Vanity. That's what it says on Wikipedia. But he was all over the third season. And uh, we got Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, the writing partners, uh, you know, and also like producers of this show. Anyway, so nothing's perfect. Title music. And then I think we pick up with Ed and Maurice introducing the plot line of the clock. Yeah, so Maurice has ordered himself a really, really fancy-smancy clock. I think he calls it uh, 1572 Weight-Driven Augsburg Caroline from the workshop of Hans Schlottheim. I don't speak German. I'm sorry. I think that's correct. I hope so. Um, but, you know, you, we did we did our best. Uh, it's, you know, lots of big words, but it you instantly, if you're just reading this on a piece of paper, you could probably picture something uh, in your mind that we will see uh, later in the episode because they're, they're sort of setting up the pedestal for the clock, which has yet to be delivered. But um, Maurice is very excited and you can you can tell this because he's paying Ed a lot in large bills you know I think he hands Ed like a hundred dollar bill or something and Ed says I don't have I'm sorry I don't have change and Maurice says no no no, no it's okay Maurice is, is definitely in a good mood very excited for this um, clock yeah and he kind of explains to Ed the principles of time saying how beforehand we were just uh, paper to the wind. We had no control. We were just being moved by the tides of time. But when we invented the clock, we were finally able to have like a measure of unit, like something that we can measure it by. And therefore, in his mind, he felt like we controlled it. And that was the turning point. Yeah, I like how he, I think he like gestures to the wristwatch and says like, we have tamed time. We're in control of it. And obviously like that's kind of figurative, right? Because time is always moving. Like you can't really control it, but I kind of see how you can wrap your head around this idea. It's like if you can measure time, if you have the ability now to measure time, uh, you know, and throughout this entire episode, Maurice is going to keep expounding on this. But if you have that ability to measure time, it gives you a, a large advantage in a, lot, in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, it's almost like the feeling of control. Like once you can recognize the situation that's playing at hand, that's when you can at least start moving toward the right path. And I think that's what Maurice is trying to explain to Ed, saying like, well, it's not like that we literally can control time, like we can you know, time travel <laughs> yeah. or whatever like that. He means that like, oh, well, <laughs> now we can at least put a face to this abstract ideal. Yeah. At, le at least in his words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love uh, the writing here. I, I think I've probably said this before, but I like a lot in Northern Exposure where 
characters just ask a question to another character. The way this monologue begins in a way is Maurice says, have you ever considered what the world was like before we had clocks? We were the ignorant victims of time. Uh, just, just really cool writing. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And then right after that, we're actually introduced to the, not the clockmaker himself, but I guess the clock assembler. Yeah, I think he calls himself a clock specialist. Well, I think he says some things in German too, because uh, he is sort of the kraut rocker, German, heavy metal, hair metal fan that we saw in this opening scene briefly. Yes. And his name, I, I didn't actually pick up his name until way later in the episode. I, I must have missed it. But his yeah. name is Rolf. Rolf Hauser, yeah. Yes. And Red is the driver. Red is a somewhat recurring character. He's, I think he's been referenced often and he's not always on screen, though I think we've seen him before actually. But we see him here. He is the driver uh, who's bringing uh, Rolf in. And I think it's a really cool, I think Rolf is a really cool character because he represents sort of that German like precision and accuracy and just um, great manufacturing, I guess, that Maurice admires, but in a whole different package than you would expect. He's, you know, I think whenever Maurice sees him, he says, I thought they were going to send um, an expert. He says, yes, that's me, you know, clock specialist. Um, but he just seems like a kid like Ed. Also, this scene sets up his character visually, but we also get a little bit more exposition. Red uh, basically tells Maurice that he was surprised that Rolf fixed something in the plane, like kind of on the spot. There was some little problem as they were flying over, and Rolf is just such a great tinkerer. Um, it was a. Do you remember this? He says it's a. It was a. It was just a minor adjustment of the aneroid wafers. That's what I have written down. <laughs> so instantly, you know that. Or you can get a sense that Rolf knows what he's talking about, even though he has this um, certain outward appearance. Right. So there's definitely more than just surface appearance playing here. And we see that throughout the episode between the characters of Rolf, Ed, and Maurice. So it looks like Maurice is kind of, I don't want to say fetishizing. I, I think he's yeah. <laughs> oh, highly overthinking his German heritage. And he thinks that like, uh, Germans should be wearing steel-rimmed glasses and should be very strict and orderly. And like that is his idea or yeah. stereotype of a German. And he's really into that because he's like, oh, well, they built the best products. Like your mechanisms are world famous. And that's why I'm such a fan of your clocks and your machinery. Whereas Rolf also kind of thinks the same of Ed. Whenever he meets him, he's a, uh, He's very fascinated that he's part Indian. He even quotes the movie Dances with Wolves, which at the time may have been people's only introduction to Native American culture. So he's kind of picking up on who Ed, or at least his perceived idea of what Ed should be. And then Ed likewise does the same with him, because he also thinks like, oh, you would only really enjoy uh, German films about German people. And he, he yeah. you know, not really about that. So these three characters are simply thinking of each other in terms of their nationalities or their ethnicities. And they're not really doing any deeper analysis within each other until they get to know each other. You know, uh, you know, Ed realizes like, oh, he's actually a great tinkerer. He wants to film him. He sees how he acts when the camera's on him. He kind of gets more of an insight into his life. And... Uh, I'm skipping ahead of myself a little bit. We also see that between Rolf and Maurice toward the end, whenever yeah. he's able to see like, oh, he, he's a person that genuinely cares about their craft. 
Yeah, that, you're right. There is a lot of sort of outward appearance and sort of a really interesting duality between all of these three characters, a lot of the stuff in this episode, based on their appearance, what they are truly on the inside, but also how those kind of play off of each other, not just them being separate, but it's a really cool, I think Ralph Hauser is a really cool idea for a character, sort of like you're saying, while his outward appearance is sort of free and rock and visceral, I think he says visceral is what he loves about uh, hair metal, you know. While that is his outward appearance, you know, the inside, um, some of his um, beliefs and just his functions are very orderly in a way, you know, very precision, accuracy, um, just highly skilled, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you wouldn't think that clockmaking and hard metal would be found within an individual, but, you know, oftentimes they are. Oftentimes you see something that is just diametrically opposed and found within one individual. Right. Gives it some dimension. It's not just sort of a cookie cutter, stereotypical character. So if we continue following down this plot line of Maurice and Ralph and the clock, uh, as you guessed it, the next bullet point is Rolf installing the clock. Yeah, I like this scene mainly because Rolf actually has like a written down list for Maurice to follow on proper maintenance of the clock. Like he's thought this through on how this clock should be treated. He genuinely cares about it. It's not something for him to make money off of. He wants to sell it to a rightful owner. Yeah, it's it's a legit user manual, like stapled together like a booklet. Uh, and he describes the care that will need to be done because, you know, he uh, he takes pride in the work of restoring the clock. And, uh, you know, he knows how much work went into it. And he may be one of the only people in the world who knows not only what work was done. He points out like all of the little things he had to either recreate or he had to make his own like copper alloy to match the certain alloy that was on the clock. He remade certain pieces to fit in uh, for the clock. So he knows the work that goes into it and probably the only person who knows how it actually runs, what are its little nuances, because it probably doesn't work the way it used to. You know, it probably has these little kinks and tricks that it needs it needs to be operated properly. Yeah, exactly. And then after he installs the clock, Maurice takes him to the brick to go get some food, get some drinks. Yeah. And that is where we see a little bit more of Ross' character, where he kind of just plays air guitar with some heavy metal that's being played. Yeah, he explains the appeal. As we said, it's viscera from the guts. That's the appeal of the hair metal. Shelly's really into it, of course. She's a big uh, hair metal fan. And uh, Ralph is eating like boiled potatoes and sausage and stuff, you know, some very traditionally, I guess, German type food. The music, I think, in this scene, I think is also replaced. I don't know what the replacement song is, but according to Moose Chick, the original broadcast music would be a song called If the Walls Could Talk by Skew Siskin. And this is the scene as you described, Rolf is fascinated by Ed. I think he just straight up asks, are you an Indian? And Ed says, yeah, 50-50. Rolf reenacts that scene from Dancing with Wolves. He, like, grabs a pool cue and stands up on the pinball machine. Um, But, you know, they instantly, they're both wearing leather jackets. They're both young and cool. So they instantly just kind of hit it off and play a game of pinball together. What's the next part of this storyline? I think Maurice is introducing the clock to Holling and Shelly, and they're both impressed with the clock as well. They're saying, like, oh, wow, this is really awesome. I think Shelly calls it bitchin'. (laughs) But... Then Shelly points out that her watch 
and the clock aren't syncing up in time. Right. When the clock chimes the hour, Shelly looks at her wristwatch. I think she says, huh, that's weird. I got 10 after. And uh, Maurice instantly says, no, that, that your watch is wrong. She says, it's a swatch. A swatch, it's never wrong. I guess that must have been the branding at the time for swatch. Is that an actual product? Hang on. Wait, what? I, I thought she just like mispronounced watch. watch. <laughs> no, sw- swatch is a brand still today. I'm guessing that was the, the was like the catchphrase or something, the slogan of the time. A swatch, it's never wrong. Um, but Halling also corroborates the time with his own watch. Uh, and it's clear that Maurice's new clock doesn't keep accurate time. So I, I think... At first, Maurice wants just wants Rolf to fix it. Like something's, you know, it it's doesn't work right. And maybe maybe Maurice is uh, offended to be, you know, so proud of Rolf and kind of showing him off at the brick uh, when Rolf maybe didn't do such a great job. At least that's what Maurice is thinking. Um, but before we get there, I did want to say the wine that they are drinking in this scene is a Quinta de Noval, 63. I don't know anything about wine, but I just like to point out whenever they reference it in the show, according to Shelley, it tastes like Robitussin. Hmm. Okay. That's not the <laughs> only wine referenced in this episode. I think that Chris and Amy drink wine. Right. Yeah. I think that's like that's kind of a funny scene because uh, she brings like she's carrying a cat carrier in one hand, a cat in the other, and then a wine bottle somewhere in there. And she says, this is for you to Chris. And he says, uh, the, the cat? She says, no, the wine, <laughs> you know, like she's giving him a cat because <laughs> uh, she's carrying like all these, but, but sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. I think that Chris also says the word chartreuse whenever he is describing the color of the bird that yeah. he somewhat killed. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He is an animal murderer throughout this entire episode. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because I think wine in literature represents transformation. It means uh, change from within yourself. And we can kind of see that in some of the characters. Literally, you can see some change being like, oh, like your outlook in life is changing right here within Maurice and Rolf's relationship of how they see each other. And we can also see it in Chris and Amy and how they view how romantic relationships should be done. Lots of change going on. I'm guessing the the symbolism here is how like wine ferments and changes from grapes or whatever into... An alcoholic beverage. Right, right. And I guess at this point, I wanted to discuss what I thought was one of the bigger symbolisms to be found in this episode. And I thought that that symbolism would be water. Because throughout the entire episode, there's lots of them drinking some form of water. Whether it's wine or water itself. Or imagery of water. For instance, when Chris is about to throw his motorcycle down the cliff, there's a shot of a river that's going through. And Holling mentions the bathtub metaphor for time, which also uses water. And in literature, water often represents rebirth or some sort of continuation of your own life. So I thought that that theme might play into this episode because a lot of the characters are going through new outlooks in life and they're reevaluating the way that they can view it, whether It's through love or grappling through old age or just losing control whatsoever. It seems like water seems to play a very large influence in this episode. Yeah, I definitely can see that. I didn't notice that, but the water, sort of the stream whenever Chris is throwing the Harley off the cliff, which we'll get to, I guess. But 
Yeah, that kind of can symbolize like a new, a shift or a rebirth in a way because he's got to destroy this Harley. Um, and I think later on in the episode, he dreams of perhaps getting a blockhead motorcycle. So that could even be sort of like a, a rebirth or a, a new beginning. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Great catch right there. Yeah, so there's just a whole lot of little details to overanalyze in this episode. And I felt that every single one of those details had a purpose in this episode. Like, I, I want to believe that the writers and the directors of this episode didn't just write these in or show off these imageries for nothing. I, I want to say that they have a purpose. And in this episode, they're really dialed up. Yeah, and, and you had mentioned... Uh, Holling's sort of monologue about water and the bathtub. I want to go to that real fast. It, it, it occurs after a pretty important scene, which we're gonna we're gonna have have to backpedal a little bit. But after Maurice realizes that the clock, it's not, it wasn't like um, simply that Rolf didn't um, fix it right. It's just simply that the clock is so old that it is imperfect. Um, there's no way for a clock like that to keep perfect time. We'll get into that. It's an incredible scene, but Halling um, talks to Maurice about it. I guess Maurice is really distraught after learning this, uh, really trying to grapple with the idea because he loves the clock, but also it's sort of um, going counter to what he envisioned for the clock. Um, Halling has this to say to Maurice. He tells him, you know, Maurice, when I was a boy, I used to sit in my mama's wash tub, the bathtub that you're talking about, um, Charles. And he says, I used to cut my hands and try to hold water. No matter how tightly I squeezed my fingers, I couldn't do it. The water always dribbled away. Time is like that. No matter how hard you try, it always leaks through our fingers. And I'll tell you something, you think about time too much, you'll go crazy. So again, some water imagery there. Uh, but this time sort of more representing just the fluid nature of, uh, again, sort of the chaos theory, the randomness of if you, you know, pour water into your hands, uh, the water leaks out through your fingers in all different ways. You can never really contain it, uh, I guess, comparing it to time. I, I really like Holling's performance in this scene. I just, uh, I don't think we can use the soundbite. There's there's some music playing in the background. Yeah, I think it falls back into that earlier theme of wanting to be the controller of time you can't control time and it's evident in this clock that even it can't properly control time it falls into the annals of old age and eventually you're just not going to be up to standard up to par of what you used to be so i think that this scene really sets the tone for the entire episode and i thought it was going to be really cheesy because you can tell what was going to happen but you know, it just really managed to find the balance between oversaturating or just cold as ice dialogue. Yeah, it's really easy to make that, to, to do it wrong. And I guess it's the tricky part to take something such as this and kind of give it that profound effect. Um, let's, let's go back a little bit to the scene uh, that we were just talking about or that I was hinting to where Maurice learns about the imperfection, the element of randomness that comes with this clock. Uh, you know, there's it kind of has a falling out with Rolf here because, as we were saying, he believed that Rolf just did a, a bad job, like he was doing shoddy work. 
But Rolf has to explain to him, you don't buy a clock like this for its accuracy, I think he says. Uh, Maurice obviously expects both form and function. Um, Maurice is painted to be in the wrong here, like just not really fully understanding that this is a work of art. It's not about being perfect all the time. This is something you have to care for. And Rolf's idea, it's, um, you know, it belongs in a museum almost. You know, it's, it's something to nurture and to maintain. It's not something that is going to work for you all the time. But I think even though Maurice seems kind of to be in the wrong, painted painted in the wrong in this scene, I think the core ideas that he's like grasping for here is not something that we should always deem wrong. I guess just like the pursuit of perfection here. What, what do you think about Maurice's attitude, Rolf's attitude? What's happening in this scene? Well, I think it's a little bit of a balancing act on a tightrope because you don't want to have only form and no function and vice versa. Though, I would wager that sometimes form gets a really bad slacking from people that say like, oh, it should always be function. It's like, no, sometimes you do need form. If it's completely function, then... Just think about like the graphical user interface for the old computers in Amy's, you know, in her... I guess her house. I was going to say like her lab, but that's where she lives. Uh, <laughs> there's so, you know, the old dated user interfaces, it's functions, you know, but it's maybe not something that everyone can just approach and click and, and get going. It's kind of archaic now. Right, right. And I would say that, you know, Rolf has a point. That clock is not meant to be a fully formed instrument of time telling. If you wanted that, you would have got what Shelley got. The swatch. Uh, swatch. <laughs> much more modern adaptation of uh, timekeeping. That thing takes so much maintenance and work just to keep it existing. And for you to expect it to also fulfill its function 100% accurate, and it, it's over 500 years old, I think that that's, frankly, a really ridiculous notion. So I'm kind of in Rolf's side saying that you shouldn't pick this to be your standard bearer of time-telling. Right. And I think I think maybe what's going on with Maurice is he's really just kind of like losing it over the idea of kind of the concept that he had of taming time and controlling being in control and losing that control as you get older you know, things start to fall apart like that. The clock, you know, is expected to gain or lose six to eight minutes a day. It, it doesn't really work in a perfect way. But I think what Maurice is grasping for, I think it's a good pursuit, like the pursuit of perfection. But obviously in this instance, it's that's not what this clock's about, as you said. It's not, it's not a timekeeper. Uh, it's something that should be preserved. And, uh, Still, even though it doesn't keep perfect time, it's a great piece um, just to study and admire and to think about how time works not only today, but how it worked 400, 500 years ago. You know, I think Maurice says this originally belonged to a Bavarian prince. Uh, it's you know, it's going to keep counting time inaccurately long after Maurice dies, I think he says. Yeah, he says that in the final scene whenever he's trying to reconcile with Rolf. Yeah, so let's get to that, I think. So the scene we just described happens before the washtub hauling water scene. And then after that, you know, Maurice has probably had some to drink at the brick. And then the next day, uh, Rolf is taking the clock back because, uh, oh, we learned that the clock cost $80,000. Uh, but Maurice wants his money back. He's returning the clock. 
And then the next day, uh, Rolf is taking it down. I like Maurice's performance in this scene a lot. He um, almost kind of timidly, he kind of like his hand is cupping the back of his neck. He says, you know, I'm keeping the clock. Did you hear what I said? Like he's got to get Rolf's attention. Rolf is, uh, I think Rolf is probably wearing headphones and like jamming like a tape of hair metal music. But also like Rolf just doesn't want to give Maurice any attention. He's kind of lost respect for Maurice. But I think Maurice wins it back in this scene. Right. Maurice reveals to him that at his age, he, beyond all normal circumstances, was actually an astronaut. And that really catches Rolf off guard. He's like, I, I can't believe you, you of all people, would have been shot off into space. And Maurice explains that at that time, the reason he did so was because he felt that he was immortal. Like, at that particular time, you're not going to be thinking about your own death, like your own demise. Yeah. That doesn't come till much later. And so he kind of understands where Rolf's coming from, where he feels that like you probably think that you're immortal and that yeah. your youthfulness is going to keep you up forever. Yeah, he says, you're 26, you're immortal at that age, you know. And um, I think really if you boil the scene down, it's basically Maurice saying like, I'm wrong. You know, I was wrong about that. I've been thinking through it. Here's my perspective. I think uh, the direct quote is, time has its own agenda. There's no stopping it. And I think that's what really moves Rolf into seeing that, you know, Maurice is, he wanted the clock for a lot of reasons. And maybe one of them was to control and to have that precise control of time. But even if he was wrong there, it's true that Maurice is thinking about time a lot, and he has some profound thoughts about aging, about youth and about dying, and about how time will always, you know, have its own agenda. There's no stopping it. I think Rolf, this is what this is where Rolf can kind of uh, respect what Maurice is going through. Maybe we can write off that last uh, that last disagreement in the last scene as. Uh, just kind of Maurice is having trouble coming to terms. Right, right. And I think we are left to believe that Rolf leaves the clock with Maurice in the end. Yes, uh, yeah, because I think uh, the last time we see Maurice is in sort of a sort of a montage in the ending and uh, the clock is there. I think Maurice is like reading something. Um, there's music playing, so I don't know if you actually hear the clock chiming, but maybe we see sort of... Um, the moving parts of the clock. Maurice looks at his wristwatch and just the expression, like he's not exactly happy, but it's sort of like a, what can you do? You know, like he's disgruntled, but yeah, I don't know. He's, he's just facing the music, I guess. <laughs> so I think this episode really only has sort of two major plot lines. We were talking about this before. Joel is in this episode, but kind of just in very minor ways. Like for instance, he's in that first scene with Chris when Chris tries to save the uh, the dog, which had died on impact. Um, but let's follow Chris and Amy. So Chris has to go find the owner of the dog and sort of be the bearer of bad news. That was the soundbite that we played at the beginning of the episode. It was leading into uh, Chris you know, having to say, I killed your dog. Um, but I really like his um, sort of approaching. Do you remember... When he when he gets to Amy's house, yeah, I remember that he knocks on the door and he kind of says like, "Hi, um, I'm really sorry I killed your dog." And then the guy who answers the door says like, "I don't have a dog." 
And immediately it's kind of strange because there's a dog in the front porch. Yeah, there's like two dogs there and the guy's just like, nah, what are you talking about? I don't have a dog. Yeah, but then it turns out that he's some sort of like repairman or something. Um, I think he's an electrician, yeah, because he's like yeah. rewiring for the all the computers and stuff. Right, and then Amy comes out and we're introduced to her. And we kind of see the inside of our house, which is filled. It's like a menagerie. It's got <laughs> fish and birds and cats and dogs just just every single pet that you can imagine and i kind of like this about her character because you would think that a technocrat of her stature would be all mechanical would be very cold but no she's filled with living things all around her even though she predominantly works with inorganic uh concepts yeah you think of you know the stereotypical mathematician is very cerebral but this is sort of a warm and loving person obviously with the Probably way too many pets, <laughs> but um, we played the bite at the beginning, sort of. Uh, they're talking about pie and Chris's fascination. Chris is really attracted to um, her brain, but obviously, like, physically attracted, so the combination of the two is really got him swooning. It's also one of those things where you're not entirely too sure if this effect would have been so strong if it wasn't for the circumstances at play. Because if you imagine it from Chris's perspective, love is like the last thing you are thinking of whenever you're going to go apologize to someone for killing their pet. But because it catches them so off guard, maybe it has an even stronger effect because you just weren't even guarded for it. Yeah. So that could play into it, in my opinion. Definitely. And this will fit into our conversation towards the end of this plot line about um, love being in a context. The idea that... As you're saying, Chris is in this mindset of, I'm a dog killer. I've got to be the bearer of bad news. And then, so in a way, he's doubly swept off his feet, not only by his attraction, but just the situation, not expecting it to turn out into sort of a romantic encounter. Um, I did want to say, you know, we played the soundbite at the beginning with all the pie talk, but right before that bite, they're kind of talking about um, just math in general. And and, uh, Amy mentions transcendental numbers. I just thought that was such a funny term. It reminded me of like transcendental meditation and something that would really check uh, Chris's boxes, you know. But um, (laughs) what does she also say? She says non-Euclidean geometry. A lot of this reminds me of that scene in Jurassic Park where they're like in the helicopter and uh, Ian Malcolm is sort of uh, trying to hit on um, Dr. Sattler. You've heard of of chaos theory? No. No, nonlinear equations? Strange attractors. Dr. Sattler, I, I refuse to believe that you aren't familiar with the concept of attraction. Also, the Ian Malcolm character in Jurassic Park is sort of like the rock star scientist. So we have that sort of duality of a character. You know, you, you if you want to make someone seem a little more real, perhaps, it's not just a stereotype. You say, um, yes, he's like a chaos theorist. But also he's sort of the rock star. I think in in the movie Jurassic Park, he's referred to as like a rock star number of times. Mm. (laughs) So we next see Chris driving up on his motorcycle to go visit Amy, who's giving a eulogy for her pet, Rusty. Yes, Rusty was the name of the dog. And uh, I think it's in this scene where Chris, I think maybe brings like some dog treats. Uh, He's he's just trying to... You know, he feels he still feels guilty, but he also is interested in Amy. So he ends the scene by asking her out, right? He does. But right before that, though, he says that he has a buddy oh, right. that also had 
puppies just now. Yeah. And he was wondering if she wanted one. And she kind of makes a neat little observation to say that, you know, it, it won't be the same. Like, this isn't a one-for-one trade. Like, whenever you lose a puppy, you just pick up another one, and that same exact gap that you're missing in your life will be replaced. Like, obviously, a new puppy will fill in a different type of gap, but the original one, that will never be fulfilled. That's just something that you live with. Right. And we kind of, again, we will kind of uh, dive back into this theme of that sort of inequality of like getting a new puppy does it really equal i think later whenever chris has to launch the motorcycle off the the cliff he says is does the loss of the motorcycle really equal the loss of a parakeet or a dog and amy says of course not anything would be an abstraction and obviously even another dog it's a it's an abstraction i guess in her words Right, right. And I really like that key concept that she brings up. It's not that she's irrational or she just is looking for baseless revenge. She realizes that you can never fulfill what was lost. Yeah. So there's a romantic dinner, you know, when uh, I think we mentioned earlier, Amy brings the bottle of wine and like a cat and a cat carrier. There's that whole (laughs) mix up with the, you know, this cat is for you. No, it's the, the wine. Is it in this scene where Amy sort of forgives Chris too? She says, what you did was an accident. Yeah, she forgives him for that. And before I get into this, I want to say that I like that she brings her two cats. Oh, yeah, Because yeah, yeah. one cat needs its medication and the other cat is just not okay being by itself. So she yeah. needs to also, it's a chain reaction right there. It, what a responsible pet owner. Yeah, I forget. To, that's a great, thanks for catching that for me. That is hilarious. It's like, she's got to bring one cat because of the medicine, but then like if you bring one cat, you can't, you know, it's it's pretty great. Um, so yeah, somehow now they've got cats here. And obviously Chris is allergic to cats, as we find out. He'll, he'll end up taking a pill, so it, it works out. But in this scene, when they try to kiss, he's always sneezing. Um, but it was this scene that it really started to click for me. I knew, I mean, I knew it was coming, but this this scene I think really hammers it pretty well. You know, the random nature of Pi, the random death of Rusty. What does it mean? You know, we're searching for this meaning. Amy is trying to find God or whatever, some sort of meaning in Pi. And Chris, um, I mean, is fascinated, I guess, with math, with that whole philosophy, but also he's got his own search for meaning, you know, in this randomness. Uh, that that is brought about by the, the random death of Rusty. Yeah, it's actually really neat because she's trying to find meaning, not in the abstract concept, because pi is anything but abstract. We know, right. or at least like know a large significant number of digits of pi. So it's not like looking at an art painting and trying to find out like, oh, well, what did like the artist mean by this? This is a very concrete subject. And within it, she's trying to extrapolate it and trying to find like a beautiful message from God. So it's kind of like the reverse right. of what's going on ordinarily. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I think they say it in the soundbite, like pi, it seems random, but the relationship of the circumference to the diameter or whatever, it's always the same. So it's such a random, it's an irrational number, right? Is that what they call it when it's sort of, uh, it doesn't divide equally, but it's always the same. Yeah, it's a, there's a, the button at the end of the scene is kind of a little cheesy, but it's funny, you know. Um, it's uh, I think Amy says to Chris, you know, Chris, all that stuff I said about pie, I meant every word. It, it, it plays out sort of like a cheesy romance, but all the dialogue is replaced with math terms instead of like you know, everything <laughs> I said about last night. You know, I, I meant every word. 
So the next scene, Chris is bringing her breakfast, and there's some nice instrumentals that's going on in this scene. I, I really enjoy it. Definitely. I guess that would probably be attributed to David Schwartz. Um, I would have to assume, because I don't see anything on Moose Chick about uh, a licensed song there, but nice. It hmm. almost feels like a bit of score or something. I really like it. Right. And we can see that their relationship is progressing. Uh, they're obviously falling for each other. And Chris kind of takes the next step in the relationship, which is to feed someone's pet. Yeah. she has to go off to go see, I, I believe, uh, some new crack in the technology of computers or something. Yeah, she talks about It's an actual thing. Uh, well, she calls it a YMP8. Um, but she's referring to the Cray YMP. I think it's like a series or a type of supercomputers. She throws out words like um, gigaflop. Uh, but yeah, these are real things, I guess, that mathematicians and scientists use to deal with large amounts, billions and billions of uh, processes and numbers and stuff. And actually, if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Cray YMP, if you look in the popular culture section, this episode is referenced as uh, a character expresses her excitement at finally having gained access to a Cray YMP3 supercomputer. I think in the episode she calls it a YMP8, but hmm. I, in, anyway, I, I'm not familiar with all that. There's like a bunch of different models and stuff, but yeah, Northern Exposure popping up in the pop culture section of uh, Wikipedia articles is always pretty fun. The only other reference in popular culture that Wikipedia lists is the film Sneakers, which came out the same year. So, yeah, I guess these things were all the rage back in the 90s. Huh. Well, we see at the end of the scene, uh, whenever Chris is feeding all the pets, he pours some food out for, I think his name is revealed as Pete, the parakeet. Okay, okay, yeah. And, uh... He, the poor bird just uh, immediately, his time has come. Yeah. <laughs> just drops dead. I like it pretty instantly dies. I don't think we see it happening in the shot, but I think it's like he, there's a shot of Pete in the cage. You know, Chris is feeding it. Chris go. there's like a cutaway to something else. And then when it cuts back to the bird cage, the bird is just like laying down on the bottom of the cage. <laughs> just, oh, it's just like a crazy, like, uh, I don't know how, what you would call that. Like, what are the odds? <laughs> And yeah, so kind of situational comedy, but uh, totally fits what's happening here. Chris is going to try to pull a switch, you know. <laughs> I think he goes to Ruth Ann. She says, it's, it's not going to work. People can recognize their pets. Chris says something like, you know, this isn't like a dog. This is, uh, you know, I am bet we could figure something out. I wonder if this is a reference to that old idiom, canary in a coal mine. Yeah, so canary in a coal mine is well. I know that the idiom came from they used to uh, bring the canaries down into the coal mine because if there's a certain if you didn't have enough oxygen or something, the canary would die before a human would, I guess. And so if the canary was dead, you'd be like, oh, I need to get out of here. Maybe it was fumes yeah, yeah. or something. It was yeah, it was carbon monoxide oh. in the mine, so you would bring the uh, canary down as. Uh, just as like a test subject to see if he would die. And if it did, and you knew it was unsafe and you would get the heck out of there. So I'm wondering if Pete is supposed to represent that. So Pete is a harbinger of the relationship. It can tell that if you pursue this, it's going to end in failure or something dramatic. Yeah, that's a good, you know, you could think of it. I wonder, I bet Chris is probably thinking of it that way or, or he has thought of it that way. Thinking about like maybe there is some weird cosmic force emanating from him that kills animals. And if you think of it as carbon monoxide to a canary, you know, it's going to die 
pretty quickly compared to, you know, maybe a dog or something, but just being in his presence for a second. I'm sure that's what's going on in Chris's head or that thought has crossed his mind at least once. Right. Well, it looks like Ruth Ann doesn't really humor him because he has to go to another place to go pick up a replacement parakeet. And he goes to what I assume to be a new character. I don't think I've ever seen this person before. Yeah, I think he is named Lucky in this episode. Totally new character. I don't, And I don't think he returns, but his house is basically an aviary. I, I like this scene, this character, the whole time that we're walking through. I believe it's probably one shot or there's not a whole bunch of different shots, but we're walking through this guy's living room and there's just like uh, macaws and different just birds flying around and perched and flying through the shot. And uh, this whole time, this lucky character is just sort of saying, uh, he's sort of, he's a, a, got sort of the, I don't know what the word, the way to describe his sort of characterization. It's almost like pushover, like the birds, he even says himself, the birds have taken over. Like, I feel like they've taken over my whole life in a way because there's just so many to constantly feed and constantly clean after. I just got to say the animal wrangler must have been having a field day on this episode. All these <laughs> animals in Amy's house in this uh, aviary of, of Lucky's home. And uh, actually, when we see the exterior of Lucky's house, there's a bunch of geese crossing the road. Do you remember that shot? I do, yeah. There was a shot, I think, last episode. I guess we should have mentioned it there. But there's a shot, a nice exterior with like a rainbow. There's some pretty cool little exterior shots that are uh, – that are finding their way into this season. I feel really bad for Lucky because the birds are infamous for their long lifespans. Right. In fact, it's not uncommon to find uh, a long-lost uncle or aunt that just betrothed you some parrot yeah. that you had no idea existed. And the parrot's like 50 years old but still alive. You know, it's like... Yeah, he's going to outlive gonna live. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I, you know, unless Lucky can shape his life around, he's going to die and all these birds are going to have to go somewhere else. They're going to live longer. Again, going back to the theme of time. That's crazy. I wonder if the birds being in a cage means something. What do you think? Okay, obviously this is definitely overanalyzing it a lot. But if we think of a bird as a, as a symbol for longevity and age and just lots of time – and we think of a cage as like the swatch. You know, we're trying to control time. There's the symbolism, the imagery for you there. <laughs> oh, man, the there cage we go. is actually a watch. That's what it's. That, that's that's the equation. That's what the uh, that's what the listeners come here to hear, man. The overanalyze oh, no. the overanalyzation of bird <laughs> oh, no. and bird cages. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, anyway, okay, so yeah, this is the scene where you mentioned Chris uh, describes the. Um, Pete, he, he has Pete in like a shoebox, you know, dead Pete, poor Pete. And he's uh, trying to find a good match. It also turns out that Lucky has a, a problem with his eyes. Like he has a deficiency of seeing the blue-green range or something. So he he, meant, he says, you know, I think this bird looks kind of gray. It has some gray on it. Chris says, no, obviously there's chartreuse. That was the color you brought up. Uh, but uh, the bird's pretty yellow, right? I guess they're just talking about the accents on the bird. Yeah, yeah. I think they're talking about the accents on that bird. Uh, I do think that's a little bit of a funny comedy moment that they didn't need, but like there was no no harm, no foul in, in including it. Oh, the, the fact that the um, 
the, that Lucky is like color deficient or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it's just, you know, it's kind of like a way of like uh, keeping the conflict and the drama kind of riding high. Like this is really all on Chris's shoulders. No one's just going to help him find That's this. True. Uh, you know, it's like kind of raising the stakes a bit. But um, Chris is going to make the switch. And um, I think it's pretty interesting. I think I think the scene begins with Chris just sort of like sitting inside of Amy's house waiting for her to arrive in, and she does. And he's instantly trying to get her out of the house. He doesn't want her to notice, you know, anything. So he suggests going to the brick, yada, yada. And no, Amy's going to stick around. And I think this is um, a really great interaction here. Oh, no, 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 no. You did it, didn't you? You cleaned Pete's cage. What? You cleaned Pete's cage. Yeah. Oh. Well, you didn't have to do that. Oh, yes, I did. Oh. It's the sound of shovels right there, of Chris digging his own grave. <laughs> but, yeah, it's such a great sort of um, – it's like Chris was j- almost found out his worst fear realized, but it's only after he's off the hook that he realizes that – the guilt really is too strong. Just like he thought he could kind of sweep it under the rug, but being brought to that brink of almost being found out, it was like he felt that pressure and just his worst fear. And uh, having that kind of like swept away and taken care of by this uh, decoy Pete, uh, that really weighs on him. Like he, uh, he, well, he he ends up going to Ruthann again, right? Yeah, he goes to Ruthann and he needs to get an aspirin. He needs to get some ice for his back. And I like this scene because it's showing the two possibilities that's happening right here. So either she would have caught it, the ruse, and the relationship presumably would have went very rocky, possibly ended right there, or like it did happen, Chris successfully pulls it off, but now he just thinks of her as a rube for not being able to tell the lie in the first place. And like you said, he's got this guilt that weighs on him. So it's lose-lose either way. It's not win-win like Chris said earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ruthann says you end up just hating yourself and having no respect for your partner whenever you pull a trick like that. This is a, it's a really, I mean, and this is also the scene when, uh, Chris talks about love existing in in a context. Let, let's just let's just play this out. Let's hear it. Are you all right? Amy didn't know this new bird. Good for you. No, that's bad for me. Very bad for me. Well, I thought that's what you wanted. Me too. I blew it, Ruthann. I really blew it. Because you fooled her. It's a no-win situation when you try to fool somebody you love. You end up hating yourself and having no respect for her because she was taken in. I don't know if she would love me more or less for killing that bird. I beg your pardon? You see, we say to people all the time, Ruthann, I'd love you no matter what. If you were rich, poor, black, white, thin or fat, that's not how it works, is it, Ruthann? No, because love doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a context. Okay? Love exists in a context. What do you th- what do you take from that? I think he's saying that it's very important that the foundations of your relationship are built upon honesty. So I'm not saying that initially he wasn't honest. He, if anything, he was when he came forward and addressed to her that he killed her dog. But he's going forward with his lie with the parakeet, and it's already built upon a very rocky start because he killed the dog. So he's saying that 
you need to make sure that everything is having clear lines of communication. And because I've already dug this grave and I can't dig myself out of it, I'm already screwed right here. Yeah, obviously communication, honesty, just, you know, talking to each other is key. And also the idea that their relationship began, kind of how you were saying, Charles, in this very unexpected way, the context being Chris killed her dog. She has no reason to want to continue with him, but that is sort of the framework of their relationship. That's how they met each other. That's how they know each other. So to lie about that in the first place, you know, possibly could have ended the relationship before it even began. You know, what would have happened if he never approached her or she never found out that truth? Actually, it occurs to me, we never mentioned that Chris doesn't actually tell Amy um, it was the electrician who tells Amy, but I mean, you know, obviously Chris, uh, he doesn't deny it, but, um, but yes. Yeah, so by trying to make a falsehood out of this, uh, the death of Pete, I guess also maybe robs it of whatever weird cosmic power was happening with, uh, whatever was happening with Rusty and just, um, uh, how this weird randomness plays into their romance. It's sort of a foundation in a way. And, Taking it away removes it from, I don't know where it started. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but. Right, right. Like it can't just be an abstract concept of love between two people. You can't just be taking it out of context right there. You need to view all of the parts within its insular nature. Yeah. And all those things are sort of the factors that we don't really understand how the equation works, but, you know, to bring it back to pi, you know, we don't understand all this irrational randomness in the string of numbers, but it always is uh, pi. You know, it always results in this um, relation between the circumference and the diameter. Right, right. So Chris goes and visits Amy and decides to tell her the truth, that he was actually the person that killed Pete. And I kind of like Amy's reaction in this, in that she doesn't want to lose... Chris, like she doesn't want this relationship to end, but she could already tell that there's going to be cracks in it. And you can't just lie to yourself that there won't be. So in her own words, she's saying like, I don't want to be a victim in this. Like, don't victimize me. Like, this is not right because you're going to end up hating me. So in her own terms, she wants to quote unquote, balance the equation. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, even if Chris didn't mean it like that, he's not actively trying to victimize her. That is just the case. She is the victim in this situation. And of course she forgives him. And of course he feels bad about it. But it's just the the fact. It's the context, you know, that's always going to be true. He killed two of her pets. And uh, perhaps the weird sitcom way to do it, uh, just the sort of orderly, realistic way of thinking about it is uh, to balance it out. That way, this feeling that uh, maybe they can look past uh, in their conscious minds, maybe it'll always lurk in their subconscious. So they've got to balance that out somehow with Chris losing a pet, but but Chris has no pets. Right. So they have to go pick the next thing that he loves as much as a pet, his motorcycle. Yeah. So this is what we were talking about. They launch Chris's motorcycle off the ledge. There's that conversation like, does the loss of this bike equal the loss of the parakeet? Uh, it's no, it's simply an abstraction, but it's not um, about the thing itself. It's about how you feel about it. You know, you were saying it's it's not a pet, but it's the the next thing. 
that uh, Chris loves, I guess. Right. I'm not going to say whether he should have done it or he shouldn't have done it. I like that he didn't object to it too hard. Yeah. Uh, I, most people, if this wasn't a sitcom, they would be like, no, I'm not. No, that motorcycle costs like thousands of dollars. I'm not getting rid of it just for you to get some sort of cathartic uh, revelation. Like, no. But Chris is, you know, he's willing to pay the price. And he says, like, yeah, you know what? Maybe this is right. Maybe this is the thing that I should do. And I think there's merit to both sides of the viewpoints of launching your motorcycle off a cliffside in order to redeem yourself. But I think that if it's fine with these two individuals, then I am pro Chris doing it. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful idea. Um, sort of like this balance and, uh, obviously Chris feels guilty and I think Amy believes him and Amy forgives him, but it's a way of Chris, um, I guess a, a, a sort of sacrifice in a way and sort of, obviously there's no way saying that this motorcycle means as much to Chris as Rusty meant to Amy. Again, it's an abstraction, but it's a, um, it's a, what is the word I'm looking for? It's like a gesture, you know. Is that is that the right way? It's a it's a yeah. He's trying to repent. Yeah, it's a, it's a repentance, and it's sort of like it's the thought that counts, you know. <laughs> like when right. they say that, and that really it really does it really does count. I like that they create their own meaning within it. So if we believe that the yeah. universe is as chaotic as they believe it to be, then the universe will not care if a parakeet and a dog died despite the circumstances. It just happens, but. They want to create their own meaning, want to make sure that they can have their own little uh, niche of order. So in order to do that, they deem that there is this balance act that has to be done. And therefore, this motorcycle has to be sacrificed, even though the universe did not force them to do that. Yeah. And again, like you said, maybe this wouldn't happen in real life. Maybe it only happens in sitcoms. But it does remind me of another sitcom scenario. I don't I don't think I've ever actually seen this, but I just remember hearing about it or reading about it, but it was like an episode of Friends. Charles, maybe you can maybe you can confirm this for me where it's like one character sees another one naked like accidentally and uh you know, it's just totally awkward between them for like the episode and they realize that the only way to cancel out this awkwardness between them is for the other character to see them naked like it has to it has to they both have to have seen each other naked accidentally or whatever does this ring a bell hang on i've never seen friends that sounds like a friends plot line (laughs) but i've seen another television show that had that premise okay so it's the friends episode titled the one with the boobies and chandler sees rachel naked accidentally and for the rest of the episode rachel is acting very awkward towards Chandler and kind of distance. And so the rest of the friends tell him that he, you know, Rachel has to see him naked. It's like an eye for an eye thing. Uh, Again, I haven't watched this episode. I've just heard about it somehow. But apparently the resolution is that there's like a random series of like people accidentally seeing, like I think Rachel is looking for Chandler, but then accidentally sees Joey naked. And then Joey, it's just like all, you know, all, I don't think it ever balances out in in that episode. (laughs) I've never actually seen Friends. I've seen Friends 2.0, which is How I Met Your Mother, <laughs> but I, I, I haven't seen the original. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a blind spot on Friends. I've seen a, a handful of episodes, though. So that brings us to the last scene where Chris is at K-Bear at night, kind of musing about today's happenings and trying to make sense out of it all. Recent events have set me to ponder in that ontological riddle, life, is it random or is it systematic? 
Today I opted for the systematic approach, algebraic, if you will, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Like most human beings, I'm just trying to make sense of things. I don't know if I accomplished that. I, I don't know if anybody can. You know, Isaac Newton, he thought that the universe functioned like, like clockwork, like a well-oiled machine. That's a comforting vision. It's neat, orderly, predictable, but it's a vision that's pretty much been shot to pieces by relativity and quantum mechanics, all the other bugaboos of 20th century physics. Universe is a weird place. We break our teeth developing theories and equations and systems. And where's it all leave us? A system is like the tail of truth. The truth is like a lizard. It leaves its tail in your fingers and runs away knowing full well it will grow a new one in a twinkling. I don't know. What are you going to do? Maybe next time I'll get a blockhead Harley. 1,340 cc's. Maybe out there looking to unload one. Give me a call, huh? Yeah, I mean, Chris mentions eye for an eye in that um, monologue. You know, I, I, I love, I think it becomes um, a bit of a trope of the show, but just these Chris monologues. You know, we can always expect at least one an episode, typically. Uh, I just think they're, sometimes they're just really great writing. Yeah, I think that this one was really well done because it's showing all the other characters' reaction to it. I like that Amy is shopping around for a new motorcycle as well. And that's kind of a really cool gesture because she wanted him to throw away the thing that he loved the most. But, you know, she's not above making it up to him. You know, just yeah. like... Chris uh, tried to make it up to her and she's going to try to attempt to do the same. Yeah, it's really, it's that's part of that beautiful closing montage. Amy is calculating pie on her home computer, but also flipping through Motorcycle Magazine. So yeah, that's such a great combination there and just one image. Um, part of Chris's monologue I wanted to touch on was the quote about um, truth is like a lizard. Apparently that quote is taken from uh, a letter from Ivan Turgenev, to Leo Tolstoy, uh, dated 1857. I didn't find too much about this online, but that's what I could dig up. But it stood out to me because um, similarly, Chris mentions earlier in the episode, another Russian uh, writer, Dostoevsky. He is talking about, you know, the feeling of being swept off his feet whenever he met Amy. He said Dostoevsky was an epileptic and he would talk about the sensation right before having a seizure. It was like a feeling of impending revelation as if he was about to learn a great truth, but then right before the truth was revealed, he would have the seizure. So and Chris says, I, I realize now what Dostoevsky meant. The, the feeling he felt is um, like a breathless anticipation. Like it's all coming together and then it just, uh, in a way, sort of like what Hauling's saying, like you can't uh, cup the water in a bathtub. It, it always... Just leaves right at the last moment. Right, right. I love that. Yeah, just a cool sort of synergy happening with, uh, I, I'm assuming that Chris is reading a lot of Russian writers at the time for whatever reason, but they're coming through in his, in his monologue and then in this uh, conversation he's having about Dostoevsky earlier in the episode. I, I, I want to say he was talking to Joel when he's talking about Dostoevsky, but honestly, I can't remember uh, which character it was. Yeah, it's Joel. Cool, cool, yeah. And in the closing montage of this episode, there's also an image of Ed editing 
his footage from his newly fixed camera. Now, we mentioned how Ed was like getting to know Rolf and filming Rolf and stuff, but there's a scene whenever they're hanging out and they're about to like, it's just like late at night. They're coming back with like some groceries and like snacks and like a six pack of Sprite and they're going to uh, into Ed's house, his apartment, and just hanging out late at night about to watch some tapes. And uh, Ed reveals that he's a filmmaker or that he was. Uh, unfortunately, his camera froze up recently. I think he said he left it on the windowsill one night and then it froze and it hasn't really worked very well since. But immediately you can see Rolf is starting to tinker with it and you could tell he's, he intends to fix it. And, sh- and sure enough, later in the episode, they film some footage of Rolf kind of like playing some air guitar, running around Sicily. I did want to play, I thought it was really funny, uh, a soundbite from the interaction they have. You were talking about, Charles, how Ed has sort of this um, idea of Rolf being uh, like appreciating movies that feature German characters. And, uh, well, here, let's listen to this soundbite as they're uh, trying to select a tape. You know, I've got some really good films about Germans here. Marathon Man, Lawrence Olivier, plays Dr. Mengele. Well, I just thought that one, yeah. Boys of Brazil. Gregory Peck this time, playing Dr. Mengele. Playing for time. This is really good. Of course, I can't remember who plays Dr. Mengele in this one. Ah, Vanessa Redgrave, yeah. I like her. She's very mannish. Tell me, Rolf. Yeah? How does it feel to always be the bad guy? I, I mean, in the movies. Oh, who cares? Do you have Cape Fear? Yep. And I have the original mm. by J. Lee Thompson. Yeah. Wow, you have quite an extensive library here. Yeah, Rolf is obviously not interested in, you know, themes of Nazi Germany. But I do like his response to Ed's question. He's like, how does it feel to always be the bad guy? I mean, this is just Ed's perception of, of Germans, uh, maybe a mainstream perception. But... um, you know, Rolf is like, uh, well, you just like in the movies. Ah, who cares? You know, this is real life. This isn't the movies, and it's uh, sort of showing sort of some reality to his character. Okay, so it's time to introduce our guest for this episode. You know, every episode we like to introduce the show to someone new. Our guest this episode has has watched the show before um, when he was very young. Our guest is Alex. And uh, I think he was a fan of the show when he was young, but uh, as you'll hear, he didn't remember too much, just some of the broad strokes. So I was really glad to reintroduce him to the series. And uh, a little bit about Alex. He's a filmmaker, um, a film buff. Actually, he's sort of the leader of this film club that I'm in. He, um, well, we, we watch films from a specific year. So right now we're on the year... Uh, 1986. For some reason, we chose that year, and we sort of form our own academy. It's pretty nerdy, um, but it's just something we do with our time stuck in quarantine, I guess. But uh, anyway, um, I've been introduced to a lot of great films through Alex, and uh, I think he's got uh, a pretty good intellect when it comes to sort of critique of film and TV. So let's hear what he has to say. Wait, did you say that you just watch random movies of a certain year? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's not, you know, we pick a year, we all decide on, and it sort of serves as a way to check off some of those movies that we've never watched, 
Um, but it's like, you know, it's 1986. So watch all the 1986 movies you can, you know? <laughs> Uh, where's the gamut of the year ranges? Like, uh, right. where can it start and where can it end? I think, so we started, when we first started this club, we started with the year 1999 because uh, initially we wanted to, okay, we we're like really full of ourselves, I guess. We wanted to redo the Oscars. So 1999, I think best picture was American Beauty, which, you know, some people might like, but I, I think a lot of people now might say, oh man, there's so many great movies in 1999. How did it go to American Beauty? Uh, so that was sort of our metric at first was like, what year do we want to redo the Oscars? But uh, we've done it for a few years, uh, definitely not in order or anything. In fact, as you can tell, we're going back in time. I think we just kind of voted on what we wanted to get into next. Oh, okay. I was really hoping that y'all would just have like uh, like a random number generator somehow that would pick the year, <laughs> but then somehow, yeah. you, uh, let, let's say like there's a dartboard and it would have all the years <laughs> that you would uh, have. So whatever the dart hits on, that's the year you do. But then somehow through a fluke, like you throw a dart and it hits like the number 21 or something. You're just like, all right, we're doing movies from the year 21. It's like a caveman <laughs> picking up rocks or something. It's like, I think this is Academy Award. Uh, material well. right here. <laughs> no, yeah, I guess we spend so much time uh, ingesting all these movies and sort of like banging the table for what movies we think deserve whatever award. Uh, a lot of time goes into picking the year too. I think 1986 is a, is a great uh, year in films. So uh, yeah, we've been rediscovering a lot of uh, just classics. Ah, okay. Well, all right then. Let's uh, Let's roll the tape on Alex. Oh, Charles, sorry. I just remembered. There's a bit of a spoiler in Alex's commentary. So I've cut that out. Uh, so you won't hear it, Charles, but if you're listening to the podcast, you'll hear Alex's full commentary, uh, all of his thoughts. So I guess, Charles, don't listen to this episode until we finish the season, uh, just for fear of spoilers. Ah, okay. Got it. Hey guys, Alex here. Uh, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be uh, a part of the podcast. Uh, this was very fun and very exciting. Um, I definitely enjoyed the episode that I watched. I had watched Northern Exposure and been a fan years and years and years and years ago to the point where, you know, other than the original premise of the show and, you know, some very kind of basic understandings of what the show is, you know, there's a lot that I forgot. There's a lot that I remember, you know, particularly the absurd melodramatic storyline of the wife whose um, voice she can only sing, she can't uh, speak. So, you know, uh, all of that as to say is that I watched this episode very much kind of not quite remembering a lot of the larger context of the show, except kind of like the principal relationships. Um, but I enjoyed the episode. And it's interesting because as I'm watching it now, I am kind of remembering the quaint um, you know, well-realized charms that the show had and what made it popular. Um, it's a very good and effective ensemble. And you see that here in a show particularly that, you know, is not a Rob Morrow-centric show, a, a Rob Morrow-centric episode. And it's a, it's a good episode. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a Corbett, it's, it's a Corbett up, a John Corbett up. And I've always been of the mind that John Corbett is a talent. And, you know, I think he, uh, carries this episode very nicely. Um, that being said, when it comes to this episode, like the most, the thing that I go back to most in a scene I had to rewatch is the scene where Chris goes and visits the woman whose dog that, uh, 
he ran over. It's such a bizarre scene, only makes sense in the context of like a scripted 90s comedy or 90s dramedy. You know, he starts off by knocking on the door, a guy comes out and answers the door, uh, doesn't say anything, and then he says, oh, I killed your dog, and the guy says, I don't have a dog, doesn't say anything else, and leaves the scene. Um, And then, of course, the actual owner of the house comes in and, you know, we understand, okay, she's the owner, it's her dog, and she just says, hey, like, I'm Amy, can I help you? And he says, yes, I'm here to see you. And then she just promptly invites him in without asking him at all what his business is. Um, It's just such a bizarre, like, you know, this is not the way human behavior would actually dictate anyone act in any normal context, but it allows the scene to proceed in, you know, its intended fashion. And then, of course, you've got these kind of very silly kind of conversations happening. And, you know, she's doing her dissertation on pie. You know, she loves pie so much. Um, But I do think the scene is, like, cute and charming. And I do think the two actors, uh, you know, pull off this kind of awkward attraction that they have uh, very well. I think the turn of him killing uh, or presiding over the death of another one of her pets was also very good. And, you know, very emblematic of the kind of interesting humor that the show has. So I definitely enjoyed the episode, and I'd be, inter- I'd be very interested to hear what y'all's thoughts on it are as well. All right, that was Alex's take on the episode. I like that he was able to analyze TV behavior and human behavior. So he was pointing out that whenever Chris is going to Amy's house for the first time, he just kind of waltzes in and she invites him. There's no uh, precursor to it. She doesn't exactly know why he's there. And in real life, you obviously wouldn't do that. But it's to facilitate to the next scene. Yeah. And I guess nowadays in film and television shows, they would try to create an organic reason for why a character would go in rather than just presuming that the audience knows it's a television show. But I wouldn't say necessarily that one way is better than the other because sometimes you just need to get to the next point and it's easier just to rush forward into it just to get your point across. Yeah, it's not like uh, someone watching the show is going to be like, hold up, what's going on? I'm confused. You know, it's like they want to see the story progress as well. So um, yeah, and, and yeah, the the scene also, I think we mentioned this before, but what's so funny about that bizarre interaction when Chris is at the door and it's like the repairman or electrician or someone who answers uh, the door is there's a lot of dogs on the uh, on the deck there, and Chris says, "I killed your your dog or something," and the repairman says, "I don't have any dogs," but he's in fact surrounded by dogs. So it's really bizarre, really confusing at first until Amy does come outside. Yeah, Alex's recollection isn't too wrong. It is definitely like a '90s comedy. You can definitely feel remnants of it where it was um, just a little bit of a style that's outdated right there, but. I like that he focused that it was a John Corbett heavy episode. Yeah, he called it a Corbett app, and he uh, I like that he proclaims John Corbett is a talent. You know, uh, he's one of my favorite parts of the show. I love Chris Stevens, and uh, I'm sure fans of the show, you know, love the idea of this philosophical radio DJ character. And it's great to see he's got sort of a major plot line in this episode. Uh, he he mentions also sort of it's a the show's a very effective ensemble, you know. It, it's good that Alex has has watched the show before because he kind of understands that you know typically our protagonist is Joel Fleischman, but you know the show very often 
will branch off into sort of that ensemble feel. So some, I remember some of our guests who are sort of uh, dropped in, in the middle of, of an episode of a season without any context, they'll often ask like, who's, what's, who's the protagonist? Like what's going on? So yeah, I mean, if you hadn't been following the show on TV, you may be a little confused, but I think the show um, effectively sort of like play, plays out as an ensemble. Even this episode, you know, Alex focuses mostly on Chris and Amy, but there's a lot of other things happening. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. You know, one thought that occurred to me whenever we were listening to Alex's commentary, and I don't know why I didn't think about this before, but what if instead of the mathematical pie that Amy was working on, what if she was like a chef and she was just really obsessed with pie, <laughs> like the food? And it could kind of work. Hear me out here. So based on your interpretation of cooking, you could either be a person who throws everything out the window and doesn't follow the recipe, or you can be someone who follows it diligently. And I was thinking that maybe Amy could fall into that latter category where she follows the recipe. She follows order and how to create pies. Yeah. And Chris is the other one who kind of just free wills his ideas and thinks like adds about a tablespoon or like, I think that we need to add like Cheetos to this mix and it will taste wonderful. Yeah, I think it could have worked. I think they should have went in that direction. No, definitely. Yeah, it's like uh, would be quite a different episode, but also you could still play on those themes of uh, logic and reason versus, uh, you know, this illogical, irrational idea of love and uh, this crazy occurrence of Chris accidentally murdering animals, I guess, being responsible <laughs> for the death of all of Amy's pets. Um, yeah, we need, a, we need a good baking episode in Northern Exposure. I mean, I'm just imagining Adam, you know, Chef Adam, but uh, yeah, maybe there's maybe there's some more room for for some for some baking later down the line. All right. Well, thanks, Alex, for watching the show and providing some analysis. I hope we were able to reinvigorate your interest in this show, or at least bring back uh, you know the memory of this show in your mind and uh, whatever we can do to <laughs> spread the influence of Northern Exposure. So, Charles, our next episode is going to be season four, episode four. It's called Heroes. Do you have any ideas? What does that evoke in your mind? Okay, since we were just talking about food, let's go <laughs> with the sandwich. Let's, let's, let's just go uh, with that general thing. Well, I should say, I should say it's spelled H-E-R-O-E-S to differentiate from, you know, Euro or I guess, you know. No, 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 like the hero sandwich. Yeah, there is such a, there's so much diversity in, Euro sandwiches, like you could think Euro, like the Mediterranean, like the G-Y-R-O, but there is like the hero, right? From, uh, where's that from? The hero sandwich. Yeah, it's like a Subway sandwich. Right. It's like a po' boy. <laughs> Apparently New York City. Apparently they call them uh, heroes. And then there's grinders. I wonder what a grinder, okay, sorry. I've heard of grinder, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hero is New York City. Hoagie is Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, you know, specifically, and grinder is a New England-based term for a hero. So there you have it, Charles. Um, we're talking heroes next week. I will see you then. All right, see you then. 
Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Alex for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. Can I help you? Hi. Uh, my name's Chris Stevens. I, I, I'm afraid I have some bad news. Yeah? I, I killed your dog. I don't have a dog. You don't? Rusty, 438 Alder? Who is it, Lenny? <clears throat> Hi. Hi. You here to see me? Uh, yeah, I think so. Amy Lochner? Chris. Well, come in, please. Sure.